This is Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 668. And the quote of the day is, surround yourself with the dreamers and the doers, the believers and the thinkers, but most of all, surround yourself with those who see greatness within you, even if you don't see it within yourself. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here, episode 668 of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and I'm back. I've taken a few weeks off. As many of you know, I just had a baby girl and uh, had to adjust <laughs> to that. So uh, I never took, I've never taken time off from this podcast. So since November 13th of 2013, uh, never really took any time away. Thanks to my good friend, Daniel Glass, who stepped in and did a couple episodes while I was away as well. And thank you for all of your kind messages. And I got emails and messages on Instagram and on Twitter and people reached out and called me and, and I really, I really, really appreciate it. My wife and I are extremely happy. Uh, like, like I said, we welcomed our baby girl, Stella Therese Ruffini, uh, on August 1st and man, what an amazing game changing, life changing, uh, experience. And I'm just extremely thankful, uh, for that. And for, for all of you for, for sticking around for, uh, for me to take some time off. So Let's get into it with my man, Andrew Marsh. So Andrew is a mutual friend of mine. My buddy, Dylan Wissing, who's a good friend of mine, connected me with Andrew. And we actually talk about him in the beginning of this because Dylan is such a such a great dude. And Andrew's a guy, he's from Georgia and moved to New York City. And he's played with everyone. He's played with Chaka Khan and Branford Marsalis and Esperanza Spalding and Roy Hargrove and Wyclef Jean and Billy Porter played on Broadway. But he's also a gear nut. And he has, he mentions in here, he has 92 snare drums. And he has built this recording recording room for himself that is just absolutely amazing. So we talk a lot about, talk about gear not deep into the weeds and gear because you guys know I'm not a gear guy, but we we just talk about you know the essence of of having the gear and what gear to get and and getting into it and how he got into all of this stuff. But then we also touch later on uh, into how he built this career for himself and and how he how he found a group of people and and we talk a lot about tribes and and how he found this group of people to to really grow with. From the days at Berkeley where he studied all the way up until where he is now. And he's saying that, you know, of all the of all the experiences and, and all the work that he's gotten, a lot of it, a majority of it stems from his relationships that he's built from college and and just grew up with all of these people. So it's a really great conversation. And I can't wait to have him back on because there's so many other things that I want to talk to him. But for now, let's get into it with Mr. Andrew Marsh. Andrew, what's happening, man? How's it going, Nick? It's going well. It's going well. Good. I gotta, I gotta send a shout out to, uh, to Mr. Dylan Wissing for, for connecting us, a good buddy of ours. Oh man, Dylan is, is, is my guy. He's my guy. He's a good dude. Yeah, he is. He is. We're not going to talk about him anymore. I don't need his head to get any bigger than it already is. If, <laughs> if, if he's listening, Dylan, if you're listening, you need to, you need to take it down a few notches. 
Dylan is is <laughs> Dylan is a fellow a fellow gearhead like myself. He is, and not like are arguably the humblest person you've ever met, without ever. a doubt. Right, without a doubt. and then and then it's like oh, and I've I've done all these things, you know. It's like played on all these records and I have done all this stuff, and then but uh, but the humility is what gets me with him. It's it's just it's just it's just crazy. Um, you know, he's uh, I think this year he's preparing to uh, do like a clinic at um, at PASIC in November. Um, and he texts me the other day and he's like, oh, my goodness, they just added Dave Weckle to the, you know, the the artist clinician roster at PASIC. And I just text him back and I'm like, eh, you can take him. <laughs> <laughs> You got this. It's all good. Yeah, you got this. You got this. But, you know, in in his preparation for for PASIC this year, I've I've just been telling him, like, man, whoever is there to witness your clinic is so incredibly lucky because uh, the things that he that he knows and that he does every single day in the way of of drum recording is it's just masterful. Just mm-hmm. absolute masterful. I feel so lucky uh, to have gotten introduced to him a, a, a number of years ago now and to, and to be able to call him a friend. He's great. He's a great dude. Yeah, I met him. He was one of the first guys, uh, one of the first musicians I met when I moved to Hoboken. So that's the right the, one you to know, know. You know how I met him? Saw him on the cover of a of a magazine in Starbucks and was like, oh, he, it was like the Hoboken examiner or something like that and i was like who's this dude so i emailed him that's how we became friends wow <laughs> yeah wow that's really interesting yeah um when when i first when uh mutual friends of of mine and his when when they first start telling me about him i instantly googled him and was like whoa but then i went to his website and was kind of looking at his 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 gear list and his microphone list and i'm like this guy is the real deal um and then it also it also showed me what i needed to do in order to really step my game up as i was trying to um i was trying to get more into uh you know home recording back then when i learned of of dylan so um <laughs> But as a result of him and I meeting and becoming friends, the 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 amount of knowledge that he has shared with me um, is so incredibly valuable because I did not study uh, studio engineering or, or production or anything when I was in college. So, you know, it's all been something I've just been trying to learn as I go. It's, you know, I, I admittedly, uh, I'm such a bad I'm such a bad gear guy. Like, and, and I, I remember I talked to, um, I remember talking to Victor and Drizzo about this, about just the idea that now specifically drummers have to not only be great drummers, but now we're, it's like, now we're required to be engineers and, yeah. and learn yeah. how to record and all these other things. And I told him, I said, the, the main reason I never set up a studio to record remotely one probably because no one would hire me but two is the just the idea of setting it all up was so overwhelming to me that i was like it definitely i would can be 
I was like, I, I wouldn't even know where to start. I wouldn't even know what, what gear to buy. I wouldn't know what to do. And I was like, there has to be plenty of people out there who know far more than me and are going to do this a lot better than me. So I never even, I mean, this is years ago too. So like, so how, I mean, how do you even start going down that road of like, of building, building out a place to, to track? I mean, it, it's, it's overwhelming I, to me. Maybe it makes a lot more sense to you, but. Well, barely. Um, I, because, because I, I think, I think probably the first thing that most people encountered, at least speaking for myself, um, I, I've always been interested in it. You know, I've done tons and tons and tons of studio sessions in, in, in my years of, of playing drums and from, from student sessions when I was at Berkeley uh, and beyond. So I always think that it's, that it's really cool. It never, it was never, I never thought it was anything that I'd be able to achieve. And for so long, it wasn't because um, in order to be able to record, it wasn't anything that you could go to the store and buy and be able to really do. You had to have some, some serious cash mm -hmm. in order to do any kind of recording. Right. And that's just the way it was for forever uh, until the, the last decade or so. Um, so for me, it was, I just wanted to. And so I started trying to figure out how that could be possible. Um, and so I just started small. I started with, uh, you know, your run of the mill set of like sure microphones that come in the little, in the little case. And, you know, you got two overheads and Tom mics and one snare drum mic. And, um, I bought myself, a. uh, uh, an interface and, and just tried to get it going. Uh, a lot of, a lot of try, a lot of trial by error was going on. And, um, uh, you know, people like Dylan, um, and, uh, another great, uh, drummer and, and engineer, uh, who I introduced to Dylan and now they're friends as well. Uh, Harry Conyers, uh, in West Orange, New Jersey, really showed me a lot of things, mostly showed me what I was doing wrong. Um, <laughs> I had a concept of what I wanted my drum studio to be, Nick. And it was, um, I was going in that direction until I had a conversation with Trevor Lawrence and it changed everything and it changed the balance on my, on my, uh, on my bank account and not in the, not in a positive <laughs> direction either. <laughs> but I, I, cause I understood concept conceptually what was going on in music tech that, you know, you could record digitally, you could use then all kind of plugins to, to enhance or change the sound of, of your instrument. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. I can just have a small studio that I could make sound good. I'll get some decent microphones. And so I did uh, two or three different levels of upgrading on my microphones until I, you know, kind of got what I needed. And, um, but largely I was trying to use plugins, but then I would see guys that I look up to like Dylan, like Trevor Lawrence, um, uh, like Aaron Sterling, and they're using all of this, like all of these preamps that they're running the microphones through. And I'm like, but I have universal audio, everything. And I'm using Trevor Lawrence's uh, presets that they claim that he uses. But if he's using all these Neve 1073s, 
then he's not really using the plugins. And so I was confused. I'm like, somebody's lying. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I, I don't really know Trevor very well, but uh, I, I ran into him at NAM, and I'm talking like I did probably what most well-known drummers hate uh, at NAM. I cornered him. And he was really cool about it, though. And and I asked him straight up. I'm like, man, listen, I have your I have your Neve 1073 uh, presets for the universal audio plug in. Mm-hmm. But then I follow you on Instagram and I see you doing recording sessions and you have racks and racks and racks of gear. Like, so what is it? Are you using the plug in or are you using hardware? And and he told me quite simply, uh, he said, look, these these plugins have gotten really, really, really good. They sound great. They're great tools to use. But there's just something about having your sound hit real tubes that still there's just a difference. And he said, if you record on your plugins and we put that up against my sound with you know, real preamps, mine's just going to sound better. And I was like, wow, Hmm. there goes, there goes all the money that I thought I had saved. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, and at that point I started buying, uh, uh, you know, real preamps and, and, um, man, what a, what a rabbit hole that is. I I don't have you know a one one thousandth of the experience that that Trevor Lawrence has in the studio, but I agree. There's nothing there's nothing that compares to analog. There's nothing that compares to real tubes. There's nothing that compares to you know recording on on reel to reel or you know re, uh, recording on two inch tape or something like that. Like mm-hmm. there's just nothing like it. And you can, and for me, I'm like, I, you, I think that you can get as many, you can get as many plugins to things to mimic it. And you're going to get really, really, really close. Um, but there's just something, there's just something about something analog about that just sounds better. I mean, it sucks because, you know, if you're going to take it and put it on Spotify, it's going to get compressed and you're never going to hear it anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like, but, but there's, there's just, there's so much room there uh, with analog that it can to, you know, to breathe. I agree. I like so that is so is that the thing though? So uh, like, I'm guessing you so, don't, you're not doing everything analog. No, 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 no. I'm I'm still using you know digital conversion. Obviously, like right. I'm not like recording to tape or anything like that. Um, I just like all of my microphones will hit a real hardware, um, a real hardware preamp before it goes into the interface. Um, and, and just trying to get that. I heard, I'm trying, I'm sitting here thinking about who said this the other day. Um, but I was on YouTube and some producer was talking about why exactly, um, analog recording will always sound better. And, and he was, and I never thought about it like this. Maybe this isn't that deep. I just never thought about it, but he's like, look, when you're recording to reel to reel tape, that's magnetism. And so all that's happening in the studio, the energy that everybody's bringing in there, it's capturing is quite literally and physically capturing that energy. And therein lies the difference between recording to tape and 
digitally recording, you know, uh, uh, pluses and minuses, <laughs> you know, the way that, that that digital conversion is. And I was like, wow, that's I, deep. Yeah, I never, I never thought about that either. That is deep. That's deep. Yeah. Instead of yeah, like you said, converting it to to ones and zeros and and you know, I don't even know how digital conversion works. That's a thing. That Me just either. Like, yeah, <laughs> Me and I'm either. like the person who first. Let's. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't really understand how tape works. Like I just. I don't understand how sound come goes onto a tape. I just. I don't get it. Uh, it's like magic. <laughs> it, it, I think it, that's what it, that's a good way to describe it. It's magic. We'll just leave it at that. So, yeah. uh, so, and yeah, and I don't know how, I don't know how digital conversion works and whoever invented that, that's, uh, ridiculously impressive. Um, but I know that, you know, you're converting it. F- that's what it, that's what it is. That's the definition of conversion, right? You're changing yeah. it. Yeah. So you're, it, you're converting it from what it is into something else. And and I think you lose. I think it, like I said, I think it's gotten a lot better. Um, and to, to most people, I don't think you're ever going to hear it, but, but man, that analog sound, there's nothing like it. Um, I, I but, think it's, I think it's a, it, it's a trade-off that I'm okay with. And the trade-off is that like when, when everything was analog and real to real, I couldn't afford it and I couldn't do it. You know, things right. went digital and it became accessible to people like me. Um, and uh, with that, if we have to trade some of that, then to be just to be able to do it, then I'm down for it because I feel so incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity uh, to record music on my own without the need for um, a multi-million dollar studio and yeah. studio time. Like I remember being in my, in, I'll, I'll just say much younger, but I, I had a band and um, we would, none of us had studio or any kind of recording capability. So we would just like save our gig money, even though we needed that gig money to eat. <laughs> right. We would, we would say, you know what, for the next two months, this one gig that we have, let's save all the money that we that we make from that so that we can just be able to get into a studio to record. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, that's that's like the I, I, I was watching um, uh, eight mile the other day and he's like, oh, I'm working some extra shifts. And she's like, what are you saving up for something special? He's like, yeah, studio time. Like, yeah, these kids, <laughs> these kids don't know the the uh the uh the struggle before it was like yeah it's it's expensive to go into the studio it was really expensive it yeah. was really expensive now of course you know with the invention and the accessibility of 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 music technology today we've lost a lot of really great places and studios rooms that were just iconic mm-hmm. um i recognize that that's that's really unfortunate but you know couldn't afford to go to them anyway <laughs> right right you're like how much i'm going to record there and they're like great it's 300 dollars an hour and you're like yeah mm, yeah maybe not uh do you have any cheaper competitors that i can go to right right so but you know i um nick there's with those rooms being gone i also uh do some recording that's really cool because i use um you know the easy drummer stuff on my computer that has like real drums, real microphones, and I use it with my V drums. And then I can record real drum sound, real performances, you and use that as MIDI. 
Um, but it doesn't sound it's like super digital. That's really cool too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you bring up an, in- an interesting point, like the, the, democratization of everything right so you don't need to go through a record label you can you don't need to go through a pr agency you don't need to go to a big studio to do this stuff which i think is great i love all of that it is sad because i think that it's it's commoditized music a little bit i think that uh i think that all these great rooms uh like are it's the great rooms are getting shut down but i also think that the the craft of recording is changing a lot and i don't know yeah. i'm not in i'm not in it like you are obviously um but just the idea of like going into a studio and recording an album and I, but here's the reality of the situation it's never going to come back so we can lament about it and and you know i can sound like this stodgy old man and say oh those <laughs> were the good old days but that was that was there's there's something about going into a studio and recording a record that I wish everyone who's in a band could feel. And I think less and less people are feeling that because they're like, we're just going to record it at my friend's basement instead of like going and saving studio money or saving money to go and get studio time and being in there and like feel and, and like, quite frankly, like feeling like a rock star, right? Like sitting Complete. in this big studio and being like, yeah, we're cutting a record. Not like, ah, oh, we're in the, you know, we're in our friend's basement, just making some songs. Yeah, yeah. And 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 that same trade-off um that exists is also is as much as I love being able to record at home in my own studio and I I get in here and I go real crazy by myself. Um I am by myself. Yeah. And I, I do miss the way it was, like you said, in the studio. Um, with people a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, I had, um, I had a keyboard player, a guitar player and a bass player over at my house yesterday. And we did a session all at all in the, in the studio. We were tracking, but still everybody was here um, at the same time. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I don't do this very much. Uh, <laughs> you know, everything, everything is like, you know, kind of one by one and I do lonely sessions here and I'm used to it, but you know, there's still something about uh, missing that, that human aspect of being with people that can't really be replicated. Um, We're making it work, but you know, that's just something there. Um, The pandemic was interesting because for the first time, everybody that I knew was at home and everybody was ready to like get some work done and and that meant recording um so i was absolutely swamped and i was loving it um but at the same time i was i was really lonely i had somebody uh that wanted to do um one of those good old pandemic uh mashup concerts online you know where we're playing in the brady bunch squares but it was some really heavy players. It was Marcus Miller. It was Warren Wolf and all of these people. And it was a straight ahead thing. So I'm comfortable with that stylistically, but I had to play it first by myself. Yeah, that's that's like, that's like, how do you how do you do that? Man, you know, he had given me um, the artist, uh, saxophone player, Elon Trotman, because it was for for his thing and his 
I won't get ahead of myself, but I'll have something else to say about that. Um, he, um, he sent me like a chart that was the form and the form was going to be what it was. And he gave me, uh, you know, tempo obviously, but then I needed to record video as well as audio. So he sent me the form and I needed to play through the form, you know, that was going to be what it was going to be. But we're talking about straight ahead here. So that's a, that's something that, as we all know, it's a conversation within the, the confines of the form, but a conversation all the same. And I'm in here talking to myself <laughs> with, yeah. within that within that style. And um, but then, you know, some real some real stout straight ahead players are going to be recording on top of what I put down. And it was such an uncomfortable situation, but came out great. I mean, I don't think it came out great just because of me. I think it came out great because of the the phenomenal musicianship of people like Warren Wolf, um, who can just make anything sound great. Um, but yeah, that was that was something that uh, it was a it was a lonely. That was a more than than ordinary lonely time for making music. Yeah. Although um, there was a lot of music being made during the lockdown when we had nothing else to do and no gigs and no tours. Um, uh, the same artist, uh, Elon Trotman, we recorded an entire album um, during the pandemic and it just came out yesterday. Um, and I was very, very pleasantly surprised to listened to that yesterday morning and it sounded really, really good. And, um, you know, of course I recorded everything, everything here at home during those, those, those lockout days mm -hmm. and, um, lockdown, I should say not lockout. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, uh, that's where we are now. And, um, I'm just trying to make the best of it. Um, you know, people, uh, people like, like Dylan and, and other people, there's so many, uh, that record uh, in their own studios and just get fantastic sounds. Uh, that's a that's a big inspiration to me uh, because I know it's possible. Um, yeah, it's. I, I think know, that the human the human element to me is the uh, is is the interesting thing. Like being in a room with people recording, right? Mm -hmm. So like, and I and it's particularly weird to me. And again, I'm not trying to. I'm not lamenting about it i understand like that's where we are i think it's i just think it's more i think it's easier from a logistical standpoint and i think it's easier from a monetary standpoint but i think it's actually harder on the musicians to record remotely than it is to get in a room and record because yeah uh, because of the nuance especially if you're playing like instrument or, or uh, improvisational music like if you're playing something straight ahead or or whatever i mean how how do you do that without being in the same room together? You know, it's like, let's have a conversation, but I'm just going to record everything that I want to say to you. And you're going to record everything that you're going to say to me after I send it to you. And, you know, let's have, make that into a conversation. It just feels like it's, I think it makes it harder. That's all. One, one thing that I haven't done enough that I did this past week. And I think I want to do more of, I did a session where I was on um, zoom with the producer and so i guess that was this close and, and it was he was so cool because he just wanted to like be there and just hang we were doing his stuff but um he just wanted to hang and and see my process 
Um, but at the same time, I was able to, in real time, ask him things um, and we could talk about it just like we were in the studio. Now, that's not that deep, but that's not something that I've done enough of. And it was it was really refreshing to do that. Um, we did we we did two songs uh, that day that we were on. And um, one one song in particular, he played for me and I instantly heard what I wanted to play on it. And and he was like, but can you do it with no kick? I'm like with no kick, uh, and and he was like, yeah, you know, I want the groove to be like, uh, m- like really unconventional. Still want it to groove, but without like a kick and snare. And I'm like, wow. Um, <laughs> I'd be like, how about I'll play the kick and you take being- it out. <laughs> you take it out. Um, I, but it was, it was us being able to be together virtually in that right. moment and, and him being able to share that. Now, if, if we, if he had just sent me that, I would have plugged along and played, uh, uh, a real, you know, groove on that. And, and then he probably either would have hated it and just trashed it or had to come back and explain to me. And then that takes more time to, for me to have to go back and re-record it. Um, but him being there virtually in the moment and telling me that I was actually into it and, um, and I was like, okay. And then I instantly just started grabbing stuff and, uh, I keep a lot of percussion close by. So I start grabbing some stuff and just tracking and it came out great. Nice. I I was telling my wife about it and she was like, that's really cool to be able to, to work with somebody that would have an idea that's that out of the norm. Because mm-hmm. I mean, no kick on a hip hop track. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's stri- so. What so what what was his? I mean, I don't know. If, did he tell you what his plan was? I mean, is he going to put like how do you have a hip hop track without a bass drum? He wanted it to be. He wanted it to be uh, just a groove that was percussion oriented. He played me a song that was close. Uh, that was a, a, a Pharrell Williams track and, Mm -hmm. and it indeed did groove super hard without there being any boom or any bap. Um, and so I just went with it. And then, you know, a, a day or two later, um, I was in the car and, uh, for the love of money, the OJs, came mm-hmm. on and I've heard that song a million times but I don't know it never really dawned on me how unconventional that drum groove is it like is the, it is a little lot yeah like the snare drum is literally on one and three yep <laughs> like come on man what song or what gig can I go and play the snare drum on one and three and not get fired or somebody think <laughs> that I'm absolutely out of my mind <laughs> right and it's the OJs. It's not like it was like, you know, some, some, uh, like all their stuff grooved, you know, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like it was on some, I don't know, some, uh, I don't even know what I'm trying to say, but some like fusion or some weird, yeah, like, or, yeah. or just, yeah, or some weird style of music or something like that. You know, it's like, it's the OJs. <laughs> it's the OJs. That's a hit song that was a hit then. It's a, it's a popular song now. And chances are it always will be, but it's not like, a bunch of people started making songs where the snare drum fit on one and three. 
Um, so I, I'm I'm curious about that now. I need to I need to ask around. I bet there's somebody that knows why and who had that idea in the studio, but somebody definitely had the idea, whether it was the drummer or the producer that like, Hey, for this one, we're going to do it a little bit different because if you took the drums out of, for the love of money, I could still play a regular groove where I'm playing the kick more on the ones and threes and the snare drum on two and four. And it would still groove and you'd be able to sing the, the, the hook. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the way it's grounded with that snare drum there that's just like that special. Um, so it was it was cool to be able to do something that was like that out of the ordinary. Like I'm into that. I'd like the opportunity to do more of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I I love the idea of uh, of being able to work with someone who's across the country or i mean you and i are doing this right now right like you're you're in new jersey and i'm in california so Mm -hmm. like that or or working with a producer that's around the world and i mean the collaboration that that is possible because of the power of the internet is is mind-boggling and and it's like it shrunk the it shrunk the world you know it definitely did it's so cool uh it's it's definitely cool where i'm curious while while we were talking about all this stuff um I'm just curious how how this all started for you. Like I knew you, I know you, that you grew up in Georgia, and and playing music and and was there always like was there always this love for gear or is that something that happened to you later on? Like where did this all start for you? There 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 was um you know I I started playing drums because I was fascinated by drums just like probably any kid would be. Um, you know, the drums are, is that instrument that if you hold the stick in your hand, you could get the instant gratification of making it sound like a drum. If you strike it, uh, right. my daughter, my daughter plays flute and I can't get that thing to make a sound, <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. Because, cause I, cause you have to really know something about how to position your lips and how to blow across that thing to, to make any sound, even a not so nice sound. It just sounds like the wind. When I when I try to play the flute, uh, which is why I don't try anymore, but I did once or twice. Um, <laughs> so a, as a kid, I I, I was I, I was instantly drawn to it. You know, my story is real similar to a lot of people in the sense that I then had the opportunity because I definitely considered it an opportunity to play in church, and I played in church. Uh, growing up and, you know, that is a real performance um, situation for you at any age that requires, Mm -hmm. you know, preparation and being on your A game because you're playing music when it counts in front of people. Um, As far as gear is concerned, growing up with no internet, Nick, and you know what that's like. (laughs) I do. um, You know, I I like to sit my daughter, like almost sit her by the campfire. (laughs) And tell her, tell her about what it was like to live with no internet. When, when you, I was a kid that had questions just like anybody else, but I couldn't just reach in my pocket and pull out this thing that I could then go Google the answer to it. You know, I, um, we had a, a volume of encyclopedias in the house Mm -hmm. that I loved because there were so many answers that were uh, you know, seemingly at my fingertips there at the house, but musically speaking, um, it was really tough to come by 
musical information. And how I ended up doing that was I was taking uh, drum lessons at a local music store and the owner of the music store, uh, they had modern drummer magazines. And if any of the modern drummer magazines weren't sold before they were more than one or two calendar months old, they would cut the the modern drummer off of the front cover. And then I think they would send that back to modern drummer and get some kind of, re- I don't know what they did, but yeah. anyway, they could yeah. give me those modern drummers without the title on the front cover <laughs> uh, for, for free. Which and I so never understood was, that. I was like, why, like, why don't they just leave them here and have an archive of them? You could sell them, but I guess yeah, they wanted I, to get their money back. I don't, I don't know. know. I, but and I ha- I still have a whole lot of modern drummers with the modern drummer title missing. Nice um, <laughs> from from back then. But modern drummer was single handedly my number one learning tool. But then it also it also gave me this affinity for gear, obviously, because as a kid, I'm looking at these advertisements and I'm learning who the drummers were because I see this guy with this cool drum set and it says Dave Weckl plays Yamaha. And I'm like, okay, his drums look cool. I don't know who this Dave Weckl guy is. And, and then, you know, it, it would have their affiliation. Dave Weckl from the Chick Korea Electric Band. Well, I don't know what guy is named Chick, but... Right. But with him with a drum set that looks that cool, I need to know who Dave Weckl is. I need to know who Chick Corea is. And um, I need those drums. Because whoever <laughs> this guy is, I want to look as cool as he does. Right. So, um, did you ever so, see the, did you ever see the, um, the Pearl ad with Jeff Picaro? Yeah. And there's no drums in it at all. It's just Jeff Picaro standing there and it just says Pearl underneath. <laughs> <laughs> and Kurt Mascara was like, that's how cool Jeff Picaro was. He was like, he didn't even need drums in the picture to he sell drums. He didn't even need the drums, man. <laughs> Jeff was definitely that guy. Uh, that's rest so in awesome. peace. Um, that's so awesome. So, so like, yeah, as a kid, I, so I literally, Nick, this became a literal thing. I, um, I went to my band director and I'm like, hey, who is Chick Corea? And he told me. Uh, he gave me uh, a CD, so I got to hear Dave Weckl play with Chick Corea. I was instantly a fan mm-hmm. uh, of both of them. And um, and then at that point, my drum set was a Tama Rockstar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the with the ten, uh, the 12, 13, and 16 toms. Yeah, uh, that are, that, were they like 87 inches deep? Oh my gosh. It was, it was crazy. <laughs> you couldn't get the Tom's position right because they were so deep. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're like, uh, they're like vertical and you're, <laughs> you know, and, sitting and, on top so of the head of the drum. Around that same time. So then I'm all the way into Dave Weckl and everything that Dave Weckl does. And then also with Modern Drummer Magazine, I learn, I see another cool guy that's got a jerry curl. And that wasn't even, that was pretty cool too. <laughs> and it was, it was Dennis Chambers. And it's like Dennis Chambers um, plays uh, with the Brecker brothers. And so I wanted to know who the Brecker brothers were. 
Um, and so there was this like kind of like reverse engineering that was going on from looking and reading Modern Drummer magazine at that time um, that was I was then forming a knowledge base of not only who drummers were, but who their musical affiliations were and what kind of gear they played. And I would read the same Modern Drummer magazine from month to month until a new one came out backwards and forwards and looking at every single advertisement for every single maker. So I started knowing just all this stuff about cymbals, sticks, drums, um, uh, pedals, and and I just wanted it. Um, my, my snare drum collection right now, which stands at 92 snare drums. What? Um, <laughs> Nick, it's disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> You it's, gotta send me a picture really, of your your snare. I'm sure I'm sure you got some pictures of all those. Oh snare yeah, drums. yeah, it's, it's it's disgusting. Um, but most of the snare drums that are in my my current collection are snare drums that I've been chasing from when I was a kid and reading Modern Drummer, but I didn't have the money to buy them, and my mom and dad were not gonna be buying me like. <laughs> you know right. all those snare drums so i'm just chasing around you know a lot of snare drums from like you know the late 80s early 90s um kind of thing and yeah because i just like modern drummer was everything um my parents what's your, what's your favorite snare drum out of all those that's probably a tough question. oh my gosh you know what i can answer that my favorite snare drum is my first one and that's that, a good one yeah, my mom bought me my first snare drum, uh, which is a Ludwig Superphonic. It's a hell of a first snare drum. I'll say. <laughs> and um, I didn't know that it was as nice of a snare drum as it is until a lot later. Um, my mom paid $500 for this snare drum in like 1990. And I mean, wow. $500 for a snare drum is, uh, of course, we know they are a lot more now for depending on what snare drum you get. But that was right. a lot of money, man. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And and, and she paid on it. Uh, she paid monthly on this thing until she got it paid off. And that snare drum is um, is probably my favorite, of course, because it's just an iconic snare drum. It sounds great. Um, uh, and I've I, I kept great took great care of it and so it's it's on the shelf that would be my favorite just because it's a great snare drum and because my mom bought it for me um uh the first major like record label kind of recording session that i did i showed up to the studio with a bunch of snare drums and uh the producer picked that one so the first time i heard myself playing on the radio on a record it was on that snare drum that mom bought me dude that's a that's a story <laughs> that's amazing man i can I understand mean, why that's your favorite one and i mean and i got some I've, I've got a lot of really 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 nice snare drums like um not bragging but my collection would probably make any drummer kind of drool and because it does that to me like every day when i walk down in in my basement and look at these snare drums it's like whoa <laughs> i did it <laughs> right <laughs> dude i want to yeah i'm like what what do you have in there 92 of them yeah 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 it's, what do you it's have crazy. uh i'm just i don't know i mean i'm sure you got like some really nice 
craviados and I got craviados. Um, you know, when um when when Johnny was still alive, um, I had the opportunity to like sit with him because he would come to he would come to New York uh to Steve Maxwell just because at the time, you know, they had uh, this was the old Steve Maxwell before they were on West 30th in, in Manhattan when they were at Times Square. Um, and they had the their drum shop. Did you ever go in the old one? No. Oh, Nick, it was something no. because it was like it was two floors. And the the second floor was nothing but like Craviato and uh, drum sets that belong to great drummers that weren't alive anymore. Like Elvin Jones's kit was up there and you know, it was, it was crazy. When so did, wait, when did the old one close? Um, uh, I want to say it was before the pandemic, but not much. They may have moved from times square to West 30th in maybe 2018. Then, then I, yeah. Then I, ha- then I was at that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you go upstairs though? Yeah, I mean what that's the only way to get in, right? Well, yeah, you went upstairs into it, but then when you're in when you would be in the actual big drum drum store and you think that like it can't get any better, you walk out and up some steps and then I you're did not in the go cra- upstairs. Yeah, you're in the Craviato showroom. No, I did not do that. Okay. But Johnny would come to town and just to be there and they would advertise it. So I would, I went down a couple times and got to meet him. And this was before I owned any Craviato drums or snare drums. And, and, um, you know, what a great guy and so knowledgeable about what makes a drum sound awesome. And, and, um, I was, I was fortunate enough to, um, my wife let me buy a kit um, right before he passed that was like, you know, that he had made and that he signed and everything like that. And um, that's yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll have I also like how you, I lo- also like how you phrased that. <laughs> My wife let me. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Cause you don't, you don't cut, you don't just buy a, a set of Craviato without having a family meeting. <laughs> you Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's you need a proper sit down for that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> but I mean, I I I love those drums. Like they are, they're incredible. Um, I, I I you know what that that reminds me that like I should I got I should do a a story on him on Johnny Craviato. It'd be a great story. Just, yeah, because I don't. I mean, I know like that's that's always been my thing. I was like, I always want like I want a Craviato kit. I love their snare drums. Uh, in fact, my wife got me a Craviato uh, snare drum for um, for our wedding for a wedding present. Um, wow! But like that's that's always been like you know the the goal is to get one of those. And I'm like, I'd probably buy one and never bring it out of my house. But um, but I don't know much about him in terms of like how did he and you know how did he learn to make drums and and get so good at it and so i i should do a story i don't i'd be interested in that because i don't know that answer myself i i just i remember growing up when 
Um, I was too young when he when he had his first company, which was called Solid. Um, hmm. I didn't even know and, that. But I remember when he, yeah, because I need one of those. I need one, <laughs> just one. Um, <laughs> but as a kid, I remember when DW was like, like I'd see a DW uh, uh, drum and I would freak out because they were really rare because they were still being made by hand and uh, you know they were like the first kind of boutique kind of drum company at that point because you know before then it was just like you know pearl ludwig yamaha you know maybe sonar that kind of stuff you know Mm -hmm. um of course dw's huge now but not back then and um but then johnny came on board with dw i'm sure you remember this and then he had crabbiato series of snare drums with DW, um, I do not own one of those. I need one of those too. Uh, but those would be in in Modern Drummer, and I would see it, and I'd be like, "All right, I don't know who this guy is, but he must be the man." If <laughs> like you know, he's not really a, a a drummer per se that has like a musical affiliation with somebody. He's just this guy, but his signature is on the drum. He must be the dude. Well, as yeah. it turns out, he's definitely the dude. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. I, I want to do like, I want to do uh, a little deep dive on him, which I should have done a while ago, maybe, you know, when he passed away. But, but uh, yeah, I'm just, I just keep thinking about all these, all these snare drums. There's, I, it's, it's interesting, like when you've, when you get attached to a snare drum and i had a i had a snare for a while this this uh i think i i i, ta- I actually talked to anton fig about it it was his signature snare um the yamaha with the wood hoops. the yamaha with the wood hoops the black yep mm-hmm. um and it sound it was amazing and it sounded great live it sounded great in the studio and every time i used it live or in the studio everyone was like man what is that and i was like oh it's just the yamaha you know and then uh one day i just couldn't get it to sound right anymore oh and i it hadn't been like i didn't drop it it didn't you know it wasn't out in the elements or or anything like that and uh and then i coincidentally i gave it to dylan and i was like dude see if you can do something with this and like he changed the heads like he did the whole thing right like swapped everything out and just couldn't get it to just couldn't get it to sound right anymore Wow. And I don't know that's why. Really, that's really weird. Yeah. And like, I guess like the whole going out around thing. Yeah. I guess people are like, is that, a, I mean, is it a real thing or is it not? I've heard people say that, oh, that, that doesn't really happen, but I don't know. Maybe it did. I, I, I can't, I can't be sure what happened, but it was like night and day. And then, so I just sold it. I got rid of it. Hmm. I mean, I've definitely gotten a new drum that was not in round mm-hmm. and it was weird from the moment I pulled it out the box. I'm like, Hey, something's going on here. Like, you know, the hoop didn't fit the same. So it definitely affected the sound. Um, but you know, I'll tell you what kind of, I'm sorry to totally skip here, but it just hit me. Um, I should have even led with this, but I endorse a company. And as they say on YouTube, this is not a paid advertisement, (laughs) But, but, Um, When I discovered before I was an artist of this company, when I discovered these drums, being a a, a gearhead, uh, like I almost lost my mind. It was it was just it was just crazy. And that's a Welch tuning system. 
Oh, and is that that's with the wires? Yes. Yeah. Um, just absolutely phenomenal. I, as much as I follow gear on, you know, the internet, and I, I still get Modern Drummer, by the way. Um, and so the <laughs> the magazines and and everything, like they had somehow um evaded me for like a whole year. And it was right before NAM 2020 um, that I, they came across my Instagram and I'm like, what is this? Because I, for, for over a year, um, I had been in contact uh, with uh, the guys from dial tune mm-hmm. and um, who had not yet started mass producing dial tune snare drums and um they showed me the concept of a dial tune snare drum and i'm like look what do you need what do you need help on uh so i was a i was an early investor along with some other people dennis chambers and some other people like in their in their catalog they list us in the first page of their of their catalog um because i was ready to like help them in any way I could get this snare drum to life. And um, I, I have I have one of the first ones that they produced uh, as a result. But uh, and, I, and it's a great snare drum. But when I saw Welch, I just couldn't believe how how the concept was the same was similar, but with the entire kit, not just the snare drum. Mm hmm. And and the design is so incredibly elegant and simple. And um, the most important thing is craftsmanship, which I love. And and then also, you know, allowing the drum to resonate, which is in that what everybody's been trying to do forever. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it, it becomes a bit too gimmicky, um, but they really they really, really did it. And um, I wasn't even going to go to NAM in 2020. Um, I needed a break <laughs> mm-hmm. from NAM. But I went uh, that January just so I could meet uh, Sam Welch and um, met him. We hit it off. And I'm like, man, I have to get those drums. And so, you know, they signed me as an artist. And I just, I just absolutely love the drums. Uh, they're great in the studio. They're phenomenal live. And when I take them out of the house, um, you know, sound engineers, both in studios and on stages, everybody is like, yo, what is that? And then when I show it to them, they're taking pictures of it and they're like, wait a minute. So you can change the whole. Yes, I can change the sound of every drum and it remains in tune with itself. And it's just absolutely fantastic um it's i mean it's it's wild like the whole the first time i ever saw it and so for everyone listening like i promise you that we like this is we didn't plan this out this is not like this is not not an ad (laughs) this is not like some featured ad that we're like we'll just work it naturally into the conversation (laughs) i we i promise we this is we did not plan on talking about this at all um but when i saw it i was like this the whole concept is wild like it's just it's wires that connect the top hoop and the bottom hoop and they just kind of go up and down all the way around and then there's this crank um, for people who haven't seen this it's and it's a crank that or like you know a little knob that you turn and it just tightens everything up the question that i always had with it is like can you take them and put them on another drum set or do they have yes. to be you can yes yes so 
the reason why the company is called Welch Tuning Systems is because Sam developed this tuning system on a set of uh, he showed it to me one day we were on uh, we were on FaceTime uh, a set of Gretsch Catalina clubs mm. and he developed this tuning system and then installed it on this Catalina club um, and and it worked so he never wanted to make drums he wanted to sell this tuning system much like uh, have you seen those Z kit Z kit snare drums yeah yeah, yeah I have you can yep. buy a snare drum from them that's a British uh, British drum company, um, or you can buy just the, the tuning system and then retrofit it to your snare drum. And gotcha. um, so he wanted to do that, and he wanted to, uh, to sell that to uh, a couple drum companies, and then they would have a Welch tuning system line, kind of the way that um, Tama had the Omnitune line back in you know maybe 10 years ago i don't know if you remember that but it was yeah vaguely it was it was, was kind of like a gladstone tuning system yeah on yep. on on their drum so um but he didn't unfortunately have any takers but he knew that this was something that was that was revolutionary to say the least so then he was had to figure out how he could how he could produce drums with this tuning system and and oh my goodness the drums that he's producing like the quality is just awesome like i would they're not solid shells like a craviato kit would be but the level of craftsmanship and attention to detail on these kits on these kits i would definitely make comparison to my craviato kit hmm. in that regard like it's there's nothing sloppy about it and um really really nice and and conceptually it's just great um for uh for i've been telling Lil john roberts about the snare drums because he saw it on my instagram and he texts me like yo what is that tell me about that and of course he's a tama artist uh through and through but he was like i i, I have to get one of those and it was before <laughs> his his 49th birthday so uh, I, I got him a, a Welch snare drum for his 49th birthday and, nice. and, and he absolutely loved it. And then he ended up like calling Sam and now he has a whole kit of Welch drums that he plays, um, you know, still a Tama artist. He's very, very out in the open about that. But I mean, come on, if you're a fan of drums, how could you not want something or at least want to try out something that's that cool? You've never played anything like that before. They're cool, and and I mean, for me, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not a, I'm not a gear guy, and like I feel like tuning has been a thorn in my side my entire right. career. Like right. I just I'm just not I just feel like it's not something that I'm really good at. You know, like I can get my drums to sound sort of the way that I want them to, but nobody ever nobody ever walks up and they're like, "Man, you really got <laughs> these things." To, I don't know. I just. It's, I don't know if it's my ears or or what I don't know but well, uh, I mean I I I um you know I'm friends with Kenny Sherritts. Kenny's a mm -hmm. great dude now that yeah, guy he's is the a guy. mad scientist he's he's little he's little John Roberts's tech right yes yes yeah yes and so like I'll call Kenny I've done you know FaceTimes with Kenny where he's trying to talk me through uh some different kind of tuning concepts because it even if you've been playing drums for a long time, like I have, I mean, dude, tuning is still a, a thing 
that like it's hard to consider yourself a master of it. At least I don't consider myself a master of, of drum tuning. Um, right. You know, you have a tom that uh, used to sound great. Now all of a sudden it's got some weird thing going on and like you can't get it worked out. Um, with with the welts drums, it like it's almost like every single turn of that knob it's a super cool character. One thing I couldn't understand at first is like, okay, but like just because I want to change the tuning of the top head doesn't mean I want to change the tuning of the bottom head and vice versa. And when you do this, it all, it changes the tuning of both heads and you don't have a choice in the matter. Um, uh. But I don't know. There's some kind of relativity with that. And it's just always cool. And it's just always in tune. It's time to design your dream kit. You have a sound and look in your mind's eye, and it's time to make that dream a reality. Your sound emerges from the choicest materials and is constructed using the exclusive Sonar Optimum shell measurement construction, utilizing slightly undersized shell diameters, allowing the drum head the space to float freely with unrestricted bearing edge contact. Your look emerges through the ultimate selection of veneers, hand-polished lacquers, and premium coverings to create the stunning look of your dreams. Design yours today at sq2-drumsystem.com. DB1 drumheads and cymbals allow all drummers to hit hard in the middle of the night without a single noise complaint. DB1 drum heads and cymbals provide the natural tone and genuine feel of an acoustic kit, but only produce 20% of the volume of acoustic heads. These are Evan's first drum and cymbals to include proprietary technology that allows for unmistakable and authentic feel, crack, and buzz in an acoustic kit at one-fifth the noise level. Drummers, your neighbors can sleep, your midnight jam sessions can continue, all thanks to Evan's, the most technologically advanced drum heads on earth. So here's the thing that I've always that I've always heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, but the the top head is the tone, and the the bottom head is the resonance. Correct. And for me, I like I the man. I can't even articulate this. <laughs> but the issue that I always had was like I I like the tone couldn't get the resonance right would like the resonance couldn't get the tone right or you know you get like the dreaded like you know where it's like Pitch wow yeah, yeah the whole yeah. The, that whole thing right and I don't know it's 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 the reason why I'm saying all this is like I've been playing drums you know since I was 15 years old I'm 41 now and it's still hard for me to tune I I just don't like maybe maybe I just got to do it more I don't know but uh it's it's just a thing that that and and there's not a lot of real resources out there because everyone is like oh just make it sound the way that you want to sound it's like right. well how do i get it to sound the way that i want it to sound you know and i think yeah. kenny's a i think kenny's a, a is a great example of someone who like he just puts out videos just about that stuff right just how yes. to get really great drum sounds how to tune and, and because 
every every snare drum has to be tuned differently and you should you know a, a six and a half inch snare you know or a 13 inch versus a 14 or or whether it's eight lug or 10 lug or you know all of that stuff plays into how not that i'm saying i know the answers to any of that stuff but i know that it plays into how you're how you're tuning your snare drum or your drums 100%. in general 100 percent, and and there's there's definitely a science to it that people like you know kenny sherritts and uh you know a few years ago the master would have been uh bob gadson Mm um had really taken taken tuning to a to a really scientific level where they understand it inside and out um and were able to communicate and, and 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 articulate these things that they that they knew um but yeah it's everything, everything matters. Um, luckily, um, my wife, she recognizes that these things are true and that's why she allows me to have so many drums. Um, because, (laughs) because it's hard, it's hard to explain to people. It has nothing to do. It has nothing to do with the hypnotist that I brought over (laughs) when we got married. (laughs) That's pure coincidence. (laughs) The the hypnotist that I have on retainer. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But but she, she recognizes, she recognizes the, the, the the changes in 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 wood build material like you know all that kind of stuff changes the uh the tone of the drum and the character of the drum and although i don't think that she can hear it herself she she takes my word for it and i'm very thankful for that um uh, she has bought me some great snare drums herself uh that I'm like, wow, that's really cool that you picked that out because it's a great snare drum. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really lucky, really lucky in in that regard. Um, she's, she's great, Nick. What do you, what do you recommend for someone who needs, if, if, if you were like, all right, you don't have any, you know, you have one snare drum or whatever it is, and you really need to sort of like round out your collection to make sure that you can sort of cover all your bases. Is it one snare drum, three snare drums? Like what, what do you recommend? I mean, if I could only, if I could only have one, um, I think it would be, um, I would recommend a superphonic or an Acrolyte. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I love the fact that Ludwig snare drums are, there's really no gimmicks. It's just yeah. a, a really well-constructed snare drum. Um, and, and they just, they just sound great and they have, uh, they have a lot of character and tuning ranges that lends that, that lends itself to to being great for all kinds of different um, styles of music. Um, so I would I would pick one of those two if I only could have one. Uh, if I could have like three, I would pick um, something nice. This wood, um, you know, of a of a not extreme depth. You know, five and a half maybe. Um, you know, no piccolo range, no super duper eight deep, um, and, uh, something that's metal and then, um, and then something that has like very few lugs, like a six lug these days, like, you know, the whole thuddy, dark, almost like out of tune, 
uh, snare drum sound with the big fat snare drum on top. That that sound is so popular that and and six lug snare drums really get that sound even without the need for um, uh, you know a, a, a big fat snare drum or anything on the top. You could really get that that Steve Jordan esque kind of sound, and I dig that. I yeah. dig that. That's that's. that's extreme... I mean, I, I'm like, I'm just a Steve Jordan guy. I was like, I'm just gonna buy his snare. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, oh, me too. Me too. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, still working on it's, it. I was like, you know, it's been years, and and it still hasn't made me play like Steve. Still oh. working on it though. Oh, I wish. Oh, I thought I that was. The, I thought that I just had to buy this. I was like, I'll just buy the snare drum, and I'll be. I can play like Steve. Yeah, didn't work that I, way. Nah, no. Nah, unfortunately, I wish it was that easy. Um. If, if it was that easy, I'd buy 10 of them uh, to yeah. sound like Steve Jordan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just in case one breaks. <laughs> right, right, right. Each one kind of like gives you more Steve Jordan characteristics. Yeah, give me 10. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> incredible, incredible, incredible player and contributor to, to the drums and music in general. Yeah. He's just, I mean, he's, he's the best. Um. Man, I I wish I feel like we need to do a, a part two conversation. I mean, there's so many things that that we didn't even talk about. Like, I love to talk to talk about your your time at Berkeley and just like all the people. And you got to study with all these great people. You got to study with John yeah. Ramsey, who I've had on, and Kenwood Denard, and and Victor Mendoza, and and just all the stuff that you've done, and the artists that you've played with, and like Shaka Khan and Branford Marsalis and Roy Hargrove and Esperanza Spalding. Like, you, I mean, you've done a lot, man. We, and we didn't yeah, like, I feel, I feel guilty. We didn't even touch on any of that stuff. <laughs> well, you got me talking about gear, Nick. And that's like, <laughs> I heard I opened Pandora's box and I was, yeah. well, and, and you know, yeah. it's, it, the, and the interesting thing is I don't, I don't talk about gear on the show because I'm not a, I'm not a gear guy. Right. But, and, and because I just, I, and so I don't bring it up because I can't really speak, uh, speak to it. But I know that the audience are are gear people, and we I, I'm like we need to talk about it. And you're a gear guy, so I'm like let's I want to I want to hear because I'm learning too, right? Like I'm I'm a I'm a listener right now. So while you're saying all this stuff, I'm like oh okay, that's good to know. That's good because <laughs> right. I really am. I'm like I'm like I'm, I'm I would consider myself a novice uh, when it comes to gear. So um, so this I mean so it, it was helpful for me. But like all all of that all of the stuff that you've done and and uh and all the work with that you've done let me ask you this i i mm-hmm. I, I don't want to keep you too long but i want i do want to talk about the time at berkeley and and how that not only how did it prepare you for the real world or did it prepare you for the real world but then how did you go out there's so many people that go and they just you know they get a degree in music and then <clears throat> excuse me they think that it's just going to land them gigs which is not not really how it works no um but you went out and you've done all these things, like I mentioned, like working with all these great heart, great artists, Wyclef Jean and Billy Porter, and and then played on Broadway. How did you, how did you prepare yourself going out in the into the real world and like connect all those dots for yourself? Um, for me, and going to Berkeley in the late '90s, um, it was kind of on a bubble, so a lot of things were going to change. Um, but oh, that's a whole nother thing. Um, let me try to just answer the question here. Um, what, do, what do you mean by what do you mean by the well, bubble? There was, you know, there was um, while I was at Berkeley, um, you know, Napster happened right down the street at Northeastern University. 
Um, Is that where it started? Yeah, yeah. A kid kid down there at Napster, the guy that invented it, he was a student at Northeastern. Um, Oh, that's Sean Parker, right? I think that was his name. And the that changed that was a huge moment because that changed so much about everything for us we didn't even realize it at the moment but of course now we realize how much that changed the industry there was this um i wasn't a music i was a performance major but uh my my girlfriend at berkeley uh she was a music business major and she had this um this uh book textbook and it was called everything you need to know about the music business. And there were like different different uh, printings of this book as things in the music industry changed. But oh, we the, know the, that like the uh, Donald Passman book. Yeah. 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 It, and he's still it's still like every year he comes out or not. Maybe not every year, but every two years he still he comes out with an updated version of it. Man, yeah. that book needs to be updated every month sometimes. I know. Uh, I know. But, but for anyone listening, get buy the book it's called all you need to know about the music business it's by donald yeah. pass p-a-s-s-m-a-n get it it's up like i said it's up let me look I'll, let me google it real quick do a quick google while we're while we're on google the air search. here um let's see let's see so this one is uh does it say when it was updated uh 2019 so i'm he's probably this is the 10th edition so he'll probably come out with another one really soon but he's like he's a big big music lawyer that does every you know handles everyone from like taylor swift to like Mm -hmm. the foo fighters and everyone so like he's a uh he definitely knows his stuff but it's 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 the the name is what it is it's everything you need to know about the music business anyway sorry go ahead but but yeah no but that's it's it's it was that was part of the the curriculum for music business majors at Berkeley, I'm pre- pretty much probably still is, but, um, you be. know, I, I remember every, like that was the most earth shattering kind of moment in music at that point. And because then after that, then Apple came up with iTunes and like, you know, the iPod was a thing and like CDs were going out. It was, it was everything. But as a student at the time, um, that was also changing the way that we, um, kind of like conduct ourselves in the music business as well. Um, but as far as preparation is concerned, um, coming from a really small town um, in Georgia, there weren't a lot of musicians around for me to learn from and look up from, hence why Modern Drummer was like my thing, right? So getting to Berkeley for me was an opportunity to meet people that were my age, to meet people like Rod Morgenstein, who was teaching there at the time, who I'd only seen in, you know, on Modern Drummer ads, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and now he's like a guy that I could go and talk to anytime I wanted to kind of thing. And so that was that was crazy. Um, but also it allowed me to create a network um, of which I did not have before Berkeley coming from a small town. A lot of my friends born and raised in LA and all these other big cities. So they knew older musicians. They knew all kind of accomplished musicians, their age and a bit older. I didn't know anybody, mm-hmm. uh, but like my drum teacher and, uh, uh, a cousin of mine that lived in Nashville that played drums. Uh, and that was it for me. <laughs> so, uh, but, in order to be a professional, 
in this business, you have to know somebody. Um, there aren't auditions for things very often, if almost, if really ever for, for things. Uh, it's about who you know. Yep. It's about who you know and who you have a relationship, a friendship, and who you get along with, who doesn't mind being around you. And that is what I personally owe everything to was my time, my time at Berkeley and the great people that I got to know while I was there. Um, you know, I also in Boston, but outside of Berkeley, um, I was, um, I don't know if you've heard of Wally's Cafe in yeah. Boston. Um, yeah. I heard about Wally's. I went to Wally's and I instantly was in love with that place. When I was 18, my biggest goal in life was to have the, the courage to go to Wally's on a Sunday afternoon and sit in for the, the open jam session on Sunday. Cause I would go every Sunday, but then when they were like asking if anybody wanted to sit in on drums, I would just sit there and act like I'd never had played a drum before. I'd be like, mm, not me. I don't, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't play drums. <laughs> no, I'm all, just, all I'm just funny, here to listen. <laughs> yeah. This funny looking oblong bag I have with me that looks like a stick bag. No, that's not a stick bag. Um, <laughs> Those are so, small, they're pencils. Yeah, right. So I would I would leave there and I'd be so disappointed with myself like, oh, man, I didn't do it again. So it took me a while to finally build up the courage um, to sit in there. But then after that, I'm like, yo, I that was so much of a rush. I not only want to sit in again, but I want to have my own gig at Wally's. Uh, so that became my goal, uh, something that 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 then ended up happening uh a few years later and and I owe I owe so much to the Poindexter family uh for letting me allow me to be a part of that that lineage of of musicians that have had like their own residency at at Wally's um and of course you know like I told you before like Lil John being like my one of my heroes for sure when he was at Berkeley he played at Wally's and so I'm like you know anything Lil John did I'm trying to do uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I, I think the preparation, uh, I'm very much an advocate of what Berkeley can do for young musicians to prepare them for a career in music, whether it's being a player, a writer, an engineer, a producer, um, a therapist, like they are doing phenomenal things there at that school. Yeah. Um, it's it's expensive. I know that's the one thing that everybody always says really quick. But yeah, it, it has to be because they're also employing world class musicians mm -hmm. that are teaching there. Like where, of course, there's a lot of other schools that have phenomenal faculties. Um, but I don't know, like where else can you go that you could have that kind of access to musicians, real life musical situations, state of the art uh, uh, studios and labs, like, oh, there was just nothing like it, Nick. Um, I, even I've been out of Berkeley now for twenty years, and I still sit and think about like how amazing it was that I had the opportunity to go there. So thankful for my parents for. Um, helping me make that dream a reality um, because they thought I was crazy when I told them I wanted to go to school in Boston too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but just a phenomenal thing. And like so many 
Uh, I get asked a lot from younger people who want to be musicians. Well, how do you make a living? Well, you better know somebody um, because almost everything that I've ever done or continue to do is probably either directly related to someone in one of my Berkeley contacts or like one degree away right, from, right. from that. So yeah, so either, or you either need to know someone or you need to get to know people. Right, right. And if you're some from a big way, city, some way, shape or form. Yeah. If you're from a big city and you know people, then great. You know, but for me, like Berkeley was how I did that. So thanks to Berkeley and, and, and all of that, it's just, you know, nothing, nothing in my, in my world is, is better for, for that and has prepared me more for that than Berkeley did. Yeah. It's, and it's always interesting to, when you start to really dissect, like the sort of the groups and the pockets that you see out there. Right. So if you, even if you look at like, oh, little John Roberts and, and Brian Frazier Moore and, and, um, and um, uh, Christian McBride and all those guys like, oh, that's interesting. They all know each other. And it's like, well, they all grew up together. Right. Right. So like they Christian McBride wasn't Christian McBride when Lil John Roberts started hanging out with him. You know, right. he was just he was just some young kid, in the, you know, somebody in the neighborhood. But uh, <coughs> excuse me. But uh, but and then when you see the the guitar, the same guitar players always work with the ba- with this bass player. And then you realize that, like, they've known each other for 25 years because they met at some crappy gig on the, over here and and maintain that relationship. And and there's these clusters of people. And I, and I always think that like you just got to find your cluster and you got to find some people who are at the same stage that you are or a little bit ahead of you. Right. You're not going to like you're not coming out and trying to hit your wagon to the to, you know, the person who's playing bass with with Sting or something like that. Right. It's like find people who are around around your same level, your same experience. All that. Sure. If you can get, you know, to people who are who are playing at a higher level or playing higher level gigs like yeah you should get around them but like you need to find your core group of people and just come up with them together absolutely and and you and those and you know and especially if you're a younger player in 5 10 15 years like the people who you're with now are going to be the movers and shakers in in 15 20 years and that's what everyone's going to be like oh i'm trying to get to those guys but you'll already be in with all those people because you came up together a hundred percent a hundred percent. That is exactly the way that it, that it works and it should work. Um, yeah. and those some good yeah. examples too. And once in a while, someone gets plucked out of the plucked out of the air, you know, like Joey D Francesco gets picked up by, by, uh, Miles Davis when he's 16 or something. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's so important. And I think that either, you know, school may not be for everyone, but either go to school or, or, figure out you know if you if you're in a small town like you got to move to i I still think you got to move to a bigger city doesn't you don't have to move to la or new york or miami or nashville but like you got to move to a city where at least where there's a little bit more people and and some stuff happening so yeah you know this is this isn't my own uh expression but they say if you if you want to be a swimmer you have to live near some water um Yep. You know, be it a, a nice pool or a pond or an ocean or something. Something you where you can you, swim. Somewhere where you can swim. Yeah. And, and you look at it like, I mean, it's the whole nature versus nurture thing. But like you look at why are great, you know, hockey players from Canada? It's like, well, because they play hockey all year round. Right. Like, why are there so many Dominican baseball players? Uh, you know, because it's warm down there and they can play baseball all year. Because yeah. Because you can't play baseball in February in New York. 
you know correct and, <laughs> and it's just like you're you just you become a product of of your environment uh like why randomly like why why am i such like i'm a really good cook right but i grew up in the restaurant business my parents owned a restaurant so there i never go. was like i'm gonna go and learn how to i just I, it was just what I did. And, and you learn these, you learn these skills just by being a product of your environment. So I think you, I don't know. And I don't have, I don't have the answer and I'm sort of like rambling about this, but I think that you gotta, you gotta find your, uh, you gotta find your, your core, you gotta find your nucleus of people and, or, or you know, you gotta, you gotta find your, uh, your community somehow, yeah. whatever way and, you do and, it. And, you know, my, my, uh, and like you say, people get plucked out. Well, it, that process right there, it happens differently for, for everyone. But, you know, my camp of musicians and, and, and my musical family that I had in Boston, you know, it's just incredible who, who these guys are and what they've done and what they continue to do now. Um, I'm, I'm so I feel so fortunate all the time to call them my musical brothers and and, you know, and just watch them win all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most recently, and I have to brag about this guy, you know, when I had my own band in Boston and we had our weekly Sunday night residency at Wally's where I was the band leader, my uh, bass player is Louis Cato, who is now the, uh, the newly uh, <laughs> uh, hired band leader for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. It's now nice. Louis Cato and The Late Night Band or whatever, you know? That's um, awesome. It, it and, and, and that's how like, not, you know, not that I'm, I'm saying this would happen or, or it won't, but like, that's how you end up being the drummer for that, for that show, right? Right. Because then you're like, Cause, well, I've known him for this long or I've worked with them or, or done this. It's not like you didn't just get lucky and they're like, Oh, we're just going to call Andrew some random guy that we don't know. It's not, that's not how or, it happens. Or, or let's have auditions to find somebody because we don't know a drummer. No, everybody knows that guy. There's not, that's why there's not really auditions. That's precisely, right. you make a great point there. Um, but you know, also when these, when, when something like this happens and, uh, a guy like him gets a gig of, of that magnitude. You think back to when we were just like, you know, trying to struggle to to pay some our rent in Boston, and, you know, um, and it's like, no, it, it makes sense. It makes sense that that's what he has been hired to do because he had all of those the necessary kind of attributes then right. um, in order to do what he's doing right now. Um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm so, I'm so excited that now the world is going to see what we've known about this guy for 20 years, you know, nice. <laughs> um, nice. really excited about that. Cause he is, uh, he's a heck of a drummer and just all around musician. Um, maybe more so than, than, than probably anybody in our generation. I'd put, wait, he's with. a drummer. I thought he was a bass player. Dude, Nick. He's a drummer. He's leading the band as a ba as a as a drummer. He's leading the band with whatever he wants. Before it was a <laughs> before, and, I, and this is why I say that before before he was named the band leader, he was filling in as the band leader for John Baptiste um, after you know all of his Grammy wins. And right. uh, the drummer on the show, Joe Sailor, had COVID, so Lewis 
was playing drums, guitar, and singing at the same time. What? What's his last name? Cato. C-A-T-O. Louis Cato. How he was I never playing, heard of him? And I, I'll, I'll have to find a, a YouTube clip when this was happening. I'll text him and see when, what month that was. This was maybe two or three months ago when he was filling in and Joe and Joe was sick. But yeah, he's sitting at a drum set in the middle of the stage playing guitar with the microphone on a boom stand and he's singing lead on TV. That's not, well, who's he think he is? Josh Dion? Jersey Josh Dion do that where he's Man, Josh playing Dion drums is, and playing is, keys is, and sing. Right, right. But but Whatever. Lewis is one of those guys. He's 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 a phenomenal, phenomenal drummer. One of the best drummers I've ever seen play. But then he's also one of the best bass players I've ever heard in my entire yeah, this, life. You there? Um, and then he's a great trombone player. Oh, I lost I lost you there for a second. You said you said you uh, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. We lost you each said other. That, yeah, you said that he's the greatest drummer, and then that was all I heard. He's just, he's a great bass player, guitar player, drummer, trombone player, everything. I lost you again. Nick, you there? We having internet issues? Yeah, I don't know what just happened. Like, it's it's weird. The the record button, it's like, it'll fade out for a second, and Uh, then you disappear, and then it lights back up, and then you're there. Maybe maybe it's aliens. (laughs) It might be. All right, so you said, you were like, he's the greatest drummer I've ever seen. He's one of the greatest drummers I've ever seen play, but he's also one of the 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 best bass players I've ever heard in my whole life. Wow! And, yeah, and it and says so here, like, bass bass player, uh, bassist, drummer, guitarist, singer, songwriter, producer. And and then he didn't even put on there that he's a low brass player. <laughs> <laughs> like the dude plays a mean trombone and like euphonium. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm just, yeah, it's like he's recorded with Beyonce, Q-Tip, John Legend, Mariah Carey, Snarky Puppy, Marcus Miller, John Schofield, David Sanborn. Yeah, he's Dude. probably, he's probably pretty good. <laughs> he He's, he's fantastic. I, I actually now, I, I need to connect you with him now. I mean, um, I would love, I would love to talk to him for sure. Because that guy has got some, he's got something to say and he's got some, he's got some stories and, um, and just a just a a beautiful soul as a person that he's one of nice. the, the sweetest guys and musicians that I that I know. Period. Yeah, man, I would I would love to uh, I would love to connect him. But that's like going back to what we were saying. Like that's the thing, you know. Like that's how that's how these that's how these gigs happen. It's like if you're try if you tried to call him now and you're like, hey, we don't know each other. Like, can we get to know each other? He's like, man, you know, I got all the, I got my stuff going on and I just got this gig and you know all that like it's 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 your community and and you just gotta you gotta come yeah. up with them yeah and that's it it's your it's you your know? community it's your it's your tribe that yep. that, you, that you belong to you know yep. um so I I, I I think my my tribe is is pretty cool and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm i'm thankful for them and um and and to just be a part um it's just I, it makes me well, happy i'm smiling you, you're just thinking about it <laughs> you drove there my man Oh so, man, thank you, Nick. Thank you. Yeah, and I, like I said, I could you know I could talk to you for for hours about all this stuff. Um, but I appreciate you taking the time, coming on, chatting it up, talking gear, talking music, talking life. Uh, it, it's been a real pleasure. And again, thanks to thanks to our mutual friend Dylan 
for uh, for connecting us. And we were we were chatting yesterday, and he was singing your praises. And and I see why. Oh man, so. oh, I, I love Dylan. Thanks, Dylan. Um, I'm a uh, Nick. I'm a I'm a huge fan of of the Drummer Resource Podcast. I've been listening to it for hundreds of episodes, and um, I'm just I feel honored to be here. Thank you so much. It's it's great connecting with you. Um, Likewise, I appreciate you. You know, Drummer Resource Podcast is like my my modern drummer for now. How I used to learn from Modern Drummer and that magazine for the lack of anything better uh, back then. Uh, this has been such an informative way to to hear uh, from uh, all my favorite people and learn from them uh, things that I didn't know uh, already. It's just it's just awesome. It's awesome. Well, thank you, man. Well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you. Uh said yes to being a part of it i appreciate it because this podcast i say this a lot but this podcast is nothing without you coming on to talk and people coming to listen so you know i'm just i'm just trying to be the conduit here so i appreciate you man thank you for everything you do for the for the you know the, the drumming community for sure and we'll have to do this again very oh, soon please please I, I'd, I'd love to likewise Good deal, man. Well, enjoy the rest of your day and I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, man. There you have it. That's Andrew Marsh. And for the show notes, you can go to drummersresource.com forward slash six, six, eight. Almost forgot how to do all that because it's been a few weeks on me. But uh, yeah, drummersresource.com forward slash six, six, eight. If you want to grab the show notes. And again, thanks for all the kind words, the messages, the emails, the phone calls. My wife and I are very, very grateful for for all of you and all your kind words. So I appreciate that. Other than that, that's all I got. So until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon and graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com.